Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Here's a question. Do we live in the best of all possible worlds? No. Ah, that was a quick answer. <laughs> if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I'm huh. <laughs> Why? Well, are we are we speaking metaphysically or are we speaking science fictionally? Uh, no, we're speaking literally of all the possible worlds that could exist. Do we live in the best one? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, what makes you say that with such assurance? Because we can always be better. Ah. And because despite recent history forcing me to accept postmodernism, I'm still just an optimist at heart, and I want to believe that we can always be better. Huh. That's fascinating. You should use that word. That you should call yourself an optimist. <laughs> and say that we're not in the best and possible world. And say that we're not in the best possible world. <laughs> because about 300 years ago... Emily du Chatelet, she built her life around this question. She was searching for the answer her whole life through math, science, theology, sociology, history, and she synthesized all of it to produce her answer. And her answer was, yes, we do. We live in the best of all possible worlds. The optimal world, she said. And in fact, she was one of the first people to use the term optimist. <laughs> she called herself an optimist because she believed we were living in the best of all possible worlds. Wow. Well, okay, so what time period are we talking? Maybe she did. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she did. She lived in the early 1700s in France. Oh, so no, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But she, she believed it, and she spent her life proving it. She wanted to prove with empirical data that we live in the optimal world. Huh. And she also set out to prove it not just through math and scientific experiment, but by living her best life, as we would say. <laughs> her story is better than fiction. It's got sword fights steamy love affairs, mad scientists, a great castle among vineyards, a trek to the North Pole, Whoa. imprisonment in the Bastille, betrayal, heartbreak, and even a tragic end. Oh, that's amazing. That's better than Princess Bride. <laughs> I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Unless you specialize in 18th century French intellectual history, you've likely never heard of Emily du Châtelet. And that's not at all reflective of her actual achievements and contributions to the world of science, philosophy, math, and, well, human enlightenment. Hmm. <laughs> While teaching a course on the Enlightenment, I discovered her story in a book by David Bodanis called Passionate Minds, 
and I loved it. So when I had the chance to go and visit her actual historic house, a chateau in northeastern France in the Champagne region, I was stoked. Oh, cool. It's not regularly open to the public, but Mark who is my husband, and I arranged for a visit with our students. It was really amazing. Mm. I spoke to Madame Comtesse de Salignac-Fenelon. Donc, je, oui, moi, je suis la Comtesse de Salignac-Fenelon. She owns the chateau. She's this delightful 80-year-old woman who has lived there for decades, and it's been in the family for centuries. Mm. And she showed us around the place where Emily du Châtelet accomplished her greatest work. J'habite enfin ici depuis 52 ans. 52 ans. 1965. Now, this interview is all in French, so... <laughs> We're going to do something a bit different here. <laughs> I want to take you around the house with me and around the grounds while I tell you about this amazing woman. Mm. But mostly I want to have Emily de Châtelet tell you about it herself because she wrote a lot of stuff and a lot of it survives. So for that, I've recruited the actress Emily Wadley to bring Emily de Châtelet to life for us for the next 40 minutes or so. Cool. The idea of living your best life is so, like, basic today, right? <laughs> yeah, basic. It's almost overdone. But Emily de Châtelet found this idea and implemented it 300 years ago in a time when that kind of curation of your own identity, your own lifestyle, your own happiness, mm. it was so not cool. <laughs> and if anything... If anything, the catchphrase of her world would be something like, play your prescribed role, no matter how miserable, and learn to obey a billion petty little rules. <laughs> Catchy catchphrase. Yeah, sounds appealing. <laughs> her world was 18th century France, and her story starts at a little place called Versailles, <laughs> at the court of the great Louis XIV. At Versailles, her father was chief etiquette officer. <laughs> so this is famously like the most mannerly court in history. And her father is the chief of manners. <laughs> so growing up, two things shaped her. She was clunky and awkward. Oh. Which I can certainly relate to. Yeah. <laughs> and her father hired tutors for her. He gave her an amazing high-quality education. Hmm. He even taught her fencing. Hmm. And this is so unusual. Most women at the time, they, even the elite women, they couldn't even sign their names on marriage registers. Even the princesses, the, the granddaughters of King Louis XIV, they literally could not read. Wow. It's wild. So maybe her dad was like, well, she's no looker, so it can't <laughs> hurt to teach her some stuff. <laughs> but then around age 16, she blossomed. And the whole court took notice, and men were fawning over her left <laughs> and right. <laughs> she's marriageable age at 16. Right. You know? So this is the moment when everybody wants to hook her. Right. Um, but she loved her books, she loved learning, and she knew that the moment she got married, all of that would end. Mm. So, 
She had to find some way of delaying marriage just a little bit longer. <laughs> just buy yourself some time. So she did what any sensible young woman would do. <laughs> she challenged the chief of the royal guard to a duel. <laughs> and she followed through. She did it. They had what? the duel. <laughs> In front of the whole court. What? She she had to take off her formal dress. She gets out her sword and she goes wild. What? Wow. The, the daughter of the chief of manners. She's all fierce and passionate and kind of terrifying. <laughs> she didn't win, but she didn't lose. Hmm. And they called a draw. Wow. And they're all just like exhausted and panting and <laughs> the duel is over. <laughs> and even though she didn't win the duel, her main goal was accomplished. Who wants a yeah. wild woman who <laughs> duels with the men? <laughs> the fawning crowds were gone. Yay! <laughs> Did her dad get fired? <laughs> no, her dad seems surprisingly supportive. <sighs> but her mom was angry. Yeah. She threatened to send her to a convent. She threatened to take away her money. And, I mean, her mother certainly was not going to buy her any more books. Yeah. So, Emily du Chatelet's next challenge is set. How do I get more money? <laughs> but, at this time, at the court of Louis XIV, the culture shunned anyone who was seen actually trying to get money. Right. So, she needs some way to get money without seeming like she's trying to get money money. <laughs> Luckily, she's very well educated while most women around her aren't. Right. And she's got a very good mind for numbers. Mm. And if there's one thing all these courtly folks love, it's card games. <gasps> so see where I'm going here? Does she become a card sharp? Yes. Ah! She's, she figures out how to count cards. Yes. <laughs> And she keeps winning and winning at the oh, card table. I love her so much. <laughs> I know. Huge sums of money. Wow. And she buys books. <laughs> and it's the perfect cover because nobody's going to think you're doing that. You're a girl. Exactly. It's beyond imagining that any woman at the card table would be able to do any of that. Wow. <laughs> so her father, well, he's trying to reason with her. He says, quote, no great lord will marry a woman who is seen reading every day. So he's like, danger. Just don't let him know how smart you are. <laughs> but eventually he found her the right man. A military man who seemed not just tolerant of her intelligence, but he actually liked it. Yay! They do exist. Yeah. He was the Marquis of Châtelet Lamont, and his name was Florent Claude. And he was a portly fellow, a portly kind of mild-mannered fellow. Oh. <laughs> Their marriage was a partnership, a mutually supportive friendship, almost. Mm. And they were to be each other's allies for life. Also, from the very beginning, it seems like they had this understanding that this was no love match and it didn't need to be. <laughs> so they would live mostly separate lives and accept that love and passion would happen elsewhere. As she passed through her 20s, one man was very noticeable at the court of Louis XIV. He was a famous wit and a writer, a playwright, a man who had, in a very unlikely way, ascended from nothing and who had done plenty of time in the Bastille. Mm. His name was Francois-Marie Arouet, but he's better known as Voltaire. 
Alors, il a rencontré à l'Opéra la marquise du Châtelet, née Émilie Le Tonnelier de Breteuil. When they met, the spark was instantaneous. It was so rare to find someone that was interested in big, deep ideas and educated enough to actually talk about them. Yeah. The physical attraction was there too, right off the bat. They were perfectly suited, soulmates, you could even say. And right from the start, they landed on a big question that they would hammer away at for the next 15 years. Is this the best of all possible worlds? <laughs> Voltaire is you. Right <laughs> off the bat, he says, no way. Just, just look at all the suffering and misery that goes on. This is not the best possible world. And he's going to stick to his guns on that for the rest of his life. <laughs> But Emily de Châtelet says, don't be so sure, man. Let's look at the evidence. And for the rest of her life, she set out to prove the opposite. <laughs> well, that makes sense because I love Voltaire. Ah, so yeah, you and he equally... Miserable. <laughs> no. <laughs> Optimistic that there wow. are better possibilities. Interesting. Don't yeah. let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I see. So, okay, well, here's the basic case for this perspective that this <laughs> is the best of all possible worlds. If an all good and all powerful God created this universe, his all goodness would dictate. He must create the best possible world. He is all good, after all. Hmm. So that's a theological argument. But Emily du Châtelet thinks she can do even better than that. Because she's so interested in logic, reason, evidence, science. Hmm. She believes she can prove with evidence gathered from the natural world that this is the best possible world. Objects around us, she said, behave in optimal ways, even more optimal than the laws of physics or mathematics would predict. Everything we observe is behaving in the optimal way. And so she called herself an optimist. <laughs> bon, alors la marquise propose, parce que Voltaire devait être en prison, la marquise propose. Time goes by, and Voltaire is on the run again for writing dangerously inflammatory ideas, as he did. <laughs> and Emily du Châtelet thought she could help. I have this country chateau, she said. It's tumble down, and it's in the middle of nowhere, on the edge of France. But that seems like the perfect place for somebody like Voltaire to hide. Right. And if it came to it, he could run for the border pretty easily, because it's right there on the edge. But she's not going with him. No, because who would voluntarily live in a place like that? So, <laughs> and anyway, there's this other guy. Mm. Alors la marquise n'est pas venue tout de suite. She's met a man who also identifies as an optimist, and he's much more pleasant to be around than Voltaire. <laughs> this guy is, in fact, planning an expedition to the North Pole to measure the Earth's poles in order to prove that Earth's gravitational behavior was optimal beyond the requirements of the law of gravity. <laughs> she was so into him, and she was so into this idea. You know, like, the world is behaving better than Newton's laws predicted it would. <laughs> I think she wanted to go with him. because She is a sword-fighting adventurous soul, right. after all. But he went without her, mm. and he broke her heart. Mm. 
Meanwhile, back at the tumble-down chateau, Voltaire has been hard at work. Alors, il a pu restaurer la, la partie là. He dumped his fortune into the place, remodeling and adding on and making it such a cool spot that, well, he was hoping it would be irresistible and she'd have to come and see it. And it worked. <laughs> when she arrived, she found a place of beauty and serenity where she could pursue her interests in peace, free from the dramas of the court free from prescribed roles about who she should be. Mm. And Voltaire was there, too, to bounce ideas off of and to construct arguments with. It was a think tank of two people, <laughs> set apart from the vexing world and full of possibility. Look at that. Voilà. Oh, wow. <laughs> She dives right in, overseeing the remodeling, more rebuilding, to create a physical manifestation of their best possible life. Série 1735. My dear Richelieu, Voltaire says I'm busy as a queen ant. But the lodgings aren't finished, and we still have 100 workers about the place. Now I'm putting windows where he puts doors, changing staircases into chimneys and chimneys into staircases. I'm proposing lime trees where he wanted elms, and where he planted herbs, I'm making a flower bed. We have found the secret of furnishing Siri out of nothing. I spend my time with masons, carpenters, stonemasons. There is no time to think of anything else. But however difficult I may be to live with, and I can assure you I have been almost as difficult for Voltaire as for you, visit us, and you will see a strange phenomenon. Two individuals who've spent three months together and who love each other more than ever. If someone had told me two years ago I would be living like this, I wouldn't have believed them. Emily. Ah oui, alors Voltaire a passé 15 ans ici. Hein. De 1734 à For 15 years, they lived there together, thinking freely, living freely, creating and exploring, sending and receiving thousands of letters with great thinkers from all over the world. Mm. They're building a new kind of life, shocking to everyone who heard about it, <laughs> modeling a new way of being. The most fundamental thing of all is to be clearly decided about what one wants to be and what one wants to do. And this is what almost all people lack. It is, however, the condition without which there is no happiness. Without it, we swim perpetually in a sea of uncertainties. We destroy in the morning what we have made the evening before. We pass our life in making foolish errors, in putting them right, in regretting them. 
This feeling of regret is one of the most pointless and most unpleasant that our soul can experience. One of the great secrets is to know how to guard against it. As nothing in life ever replicates itself exactly, it is almost always pointless to examine our faults, or at least to dwell upon them for a long time, to scrutinize them and to reproach ourselves for them. This is to cover ourselves in confusion in our own eyes to no advantage. We must depart from where we are, employ all the wisdom we possess to correct faults, and find the means to make good. But we should not keep looking back with regret, and we must always cast from our minds the memory of our mistakes. Once we have grasped the lessons to be drawn, casting aside sad thoughts and substituting them with pleasant ones is one of the great springs of happiness, and we have that within our power. And now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Girls Can Crate is an awesome subscription box that introduces girls age 5 to 10 to real, fearless women who made the world better. Every crate features an inspiring woman, a 28-page activity book, plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on team activities and more. And if you're on a budget, they have mini crates too. Real women make the best heroes, and every month, Girls Can Crate delivers them. For What's Her Name podcast listeners, we have a special discount code for you. You'll get 20% off your first month's crate, any subscription that you order. Girls can crate, C-R-A-T-E dot com and use the code her name to get 20% off. Bon, alors la marquise avait beaucoup de passion. Vous savez la passion, c'est beaucoup de passion. Here, the Comtesse Salignac says that Emily du Châtelet has many passions and her first passion is work. <laughs> The general pattern of their life was this. Alors la marquise, comme vous, elle dormait quatre heures par nuit. She slept only four hours a night. And she and Voltaire would, you know, meet for breakfast and they'd talk about their big ideas and then they'd separate again. They'd each go to their separate rooms, their separate desks, and kind of work feverishly, come back together for lunch and talk about what they have been working on and achieved, then go back and work some more for the rest of the day. That's amazing. <laughs> pour ne pas perdre de temps, elle voyager la nuit. Her bedroom was my favorite part of the house. Her bedroom was state-of-the-art. When Madame du Salignac showed us the room, it was, it was really striking because all of our students had read the book. All of our students knew about Emily du Châtelet. And her room just radiates her personality. Here, Madame du Salignac is showing us that the room is it's all blue and yellow. And she shows us how she loved her toilet, she says. She loved, you know, makeup and bathing. And, and she had an actual toilet, which was really innovative for the time. And it's basically, if you just picture a cane chair, so like a wooden chair with cane in the seating, and that flaps up and you can sit on it. And there's a little basin underneath. And voila, a 18th century toilet. Wow. <laughs> she also had a bathroom, which was extremely rare at the time. It was all marble and attached to her bedroom, extremely unusual. And what I loved about her room is that it was feminine. 
and it was cheerful and her dog's bed she had this little fluffy dog's bed and it matched her bed had the same kind of bedding and fabric (laughs) Uh, it was really amazing and it was surprising and wonderful to see because Mm. we tend to think that intellectual women are disinterested in the typically feminine world yeah but that was certainly not the case with her she loved dresses and makeup and frills she loved fanciness and she loved physics and math too Donc c'était une femme très moderne. Madame du Salignac says she was a very modern woman. Huh. They were so interested in science and mathematics and what it could reveal about the deeper truths of the universe. They worked together on a new book on Newton, on Isaac Newton. She did the science and he wrote it all elegantly. They were kind of this dream team. Hmm. One visitor coming to see them at their work wrote to his friend, and he describes just this tiny moment that I think shows so much. He said, The text was written in Latin, and yet she read it aloud in French. She hesitated a moment at the end of each sentence. I didn't understand why, then saw it was to work through the calculations on the pages. That's how fast she was. Nothing could stop her. Wow. They loved the theater, and they built a miniature stage in their attic. (laughs) It's still there, and it's a classified historic monument. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Um, You climb up these steep stairs, and then it comes around this curve, and you find yourself kind of, you end up in this triangular, magical space with a little stage to one side and little rows of wooden benches placed in the center. And they would spend days, months up there staging their own plays that they had written. (laughs) They were famous for forcing their neighbors to get involved in the plays too. (laughs) Voilà. Alors ça c'est 17e à la charpente. You know, there's no air conditioning up there, so it's just sweltering in the middle of summer and absolutely freezing in the middle of winter, (laughs) the wind blowing through the rafters, but they're just up there in this magical little theater spot they created where they're playing out all these different ideas through theater. And she Mm. loved singing, so she would sing and provide a lot of the music for it also. (laughs) C'est mieux, oui, on descend. What she loved about the theater was the joy of suspending disbelief, of giving in to the illusion so that you could experience the story. This, she thought, was a powerful metaphor for life. Stepping into that theater was such a vivid and amazing moment, surprising. It's just so small and so charming. Il faudrait appuyer sur le bouton parce qu'on voit pas assez clair là. Non, ça va comme éclairage, ça va comme là pour la lumière. Ça va. She was also raking through the Bible, examining every bit of it from scratch. She had been taught that everything in it was literally true, mm. but she thought, knowing what we know now about math and science, what parts of this text can't possibly be literal? Another source of happiness is to be free from prejudices, and it is only we who can rid ourselves of them. We all have the mental capacity to examine the things that are presented to us as true. 
to know, for example, if two and two make four or five. Moreover, in this century, there is no shortage of help for educating ourselves. I know that there are other prejudices than those of religion, and I think it's good to shake them up. Even so, there is nothing that has such an influence upon our happiness and unhappiness as religion. By prejudice, I mean an opinion that we have accepted without examination, because it wouldn't stand up to it. Error can never be a good thing, and it is certainly a great harm in matters upon which the conduct of our lives depend. Emily de Chatelet got letters from friends and acquaintances all over the world, and she specifically asked them to describe local cultural practices and moral codes in a pioneering venture that we today would probably call sociology hmm. or anthropology. Yeah. Her empirical conclusion was that moral codes vary by culture. So, she said, how can one or the other claim to be absolutely true? David Bodanis says, quote, It was one of the fundamental acts of the Enlightenment, this questioning the bases of beliefs that had been held for centuries. There was great bravery here, for almost every law and procedure in society depended on tradition. <laughs> Mais vous savez que la marquise... Hein? Madame de Salignac says Emily was one of the most brilliant minds of the 18th century. She was thinking about everything. She was trying to bring it all together into one synthesized perspective of the world. After their great success with their Newton project, Voltaire sought recognition as a great scientist. He was going to make the next great discovery. But... He wasn't suited for it, and she knew it. He didn't have the mind for it. He couldn't do the math. <laughs> but she wasn't going to crush his dreams. <laughs> so he set to work, and he was going to enter this essay into a science academy competition. Full of his own worth. He wasn't receptive to her ideas anymore. So she worked in secret. While he was playing mad scientist, she was working on her own essay, her own contribution to the science of light. And her big question was, does light have mass? She thought not. And she was disagreeing with Voltaire. Hmm. And she believed she could prove it by putting light through a prism and then measuring the different colors of light. So she had all of the theory in place. She just needed to do the experiments to prove it. But to stage the experiments would be to reveal to Voltaire what she was up to. And she didn't do it. Ah! <laughs> I can't decide if I'm sad about that or impressed. You know, that is a great show of caring. Yeah. But she's like, I'm going to put him before me and I'm not going to crush his dreams. But Yeah, but also you know. that's just toxic masculinity right so she settled on submitting an essay that laid out all the theory but without the experiment hmm. and she just ended with suggesting that experiments would be fruitful voltaire sends his manuscript away to the competition with much fanfare mm. of course <laughs> and she sent hers away in total secrecy <laughs> <Had> no idea <laughs> And when the results came out months later, 
they both received a special commendation for their essay. (laughs) But hers, her essay was so impressive and remarkable that the scientific community took special notice. A, because it was pretty brilliant thinking, and B, they were like, a woman wrote this? How is this possible? (laughs) The Academy published the essay, and it was the first ever published by a woman. Wow. She was becoming famous. Voltaire tried to laugh it all off. Mm. But he had a fragile ego. He did for his whole life. And their relationship started to fade. (laughs) He had been embarrassed in front of her and by her. And he never really recovered himself. Mm. His love faded as he soothed his ego. And after 15 years, it all fell apart. They left their chateau at Siri, and her heart was broken. When age, sickness, perhaps also to some degree the ease of pleasure, diminished passion's keenness, for a long time I was oblivious to this. I loved for two. I passed my entire life with him, and my heart, devoid of suspicion, delighted in the pleasure of loving and in the illusion of believing myself loved. It is true that I have lost this immensely happy state of mind, and this has cost me many tears. One needs a terrible jolt to break such chains. The gash in my heart bled for a long time. I had reason to pity myself, and I gave up everything. She coached herself through it by writing, and she let go. Experience must at least teach us to reckon with ourselves. We cannot do everything, but we can do a lot. In early youth, what leads us astray in this regard is that we are incapable of reflection. We have no experience, and we imagine that we can retrieve the good we have lost by chasing after it. Experience and knowledge of the human heart teaches us that the more we run after it, the more it escapes us. It is a mirage which disappears when we think we've reached it. Years passed. Their paths crossed now and then because both of them were still in courtly circles. He Hmm. found love with another woman, she with another man. But it was nothing like the connection that they had had. Then age 43 she was surprised to discover she was pregnant more surprised even to discover that the man had run off with someone else oh yeah she had this looming sense of doom she was convinced she was going to die in childbirth oh realizing that time was short she returned to chateau siri where she had done all her best work to race against time and complete her magnum opus before the nine months were up. Oh my gosh. Her husband, good old Florent Claude, he was her ally and her friend, and he was there with her. Mm. And strangely, so was Voltaire, returned now as an old friend. And they kept her company, but they mostly let her work, trying to soothe her nerves and help her through the pregnancy that she so feared. She raced against time at her mammoth task to translate Isaac Newton's Principia into French. 
This wasn't just a simple translation, though. What she was really doing was a crucial task for science. She was making Newton accessible and understandable to the world. Hmm. Because he had written in Latin, and his writing and his math was impenetrable, which was why his earth-shaking ideas weren't catching on, especially in France, because nobody could understand it, and nobody cared. But she could, and she did. And it took someone skilled in both Latin and math Hmm. to understand the earth-shaking ideas contained in Newton and someone with a great creative skill to make it meaningful and understandable. And that was her special skill set. She's working feverishly against the clock, and on August 30th, 1749, she finished. August 31st, 1749. I walked to my little summer house today, and my stomach is so swollen and my back so sore that I wouldn't be surprised if I had the baby tonight. We got to walk down to that little summer house on the grounds while we were there. It was beautiful. Mais vous pouvez vous promener dans le parc parce que au bout du canal, il y a un petit chalet. Bon sujet. Three days later, the baby arrived, and she was right about her fate. Oh, man, she died in childbirth, and the baby did too. I'm not crying, you're crying. (laughs) It's sad. (laughs) But what I really want to focus on is her achievement. Emily du Châtelet opened the door for the Enlightenment, for science and reason to thrive, for history to change. She did it! Yeah. The world's understanding of Newton mm-hmm. and the great implications of his ideas, they came through her. Yeah. And she thinks it's the best of all possible worlds, so that's what had to happen. Okay, here's an excerpt from David Bodanis's book. I think he just sums it up so well. Emily's great work was published 10 years after her death when the return of Halley's Comet in 1759 stimulated a burst of interest in Newtonian mechanics. The key notion she brought out and elaborated from Newton proved to be as important as she'd hoped. This was the new concept of energy, which showed that there was a total amount of movement in the world, and although the way it was arranged could fluctuate wildly, There could be cities that rose up and took dominion over others. There could be civilizations that were broken apart and their inhabitants dispersed. Despite all those shifts, the total amount would never change. Just as she'd hoped, it was a proof that nothing ever fully disappears, that nothing ever dies. And those theories she had posed in her, the secret essay she submitted? Oh yeah. 50 years later, someone would finally do those experiments and prove that she was right. <laughs> Yay! And guess who it was? Um, uh, 
I'm, no, no, 50 years later. <laughs> I don't know. It was Caroline and William Herschel. <gasps> Are you serious? Yep, in their back oh, garden in Bath. I love I know. that. It's so great. When I discovered that, I almost died. Oh. And in doing those experiments and actually following through with it, they discovered infrared light. What? I know. It's so awesome. They discovered infrared light? Yes, thanks to a, a experiment suggested to them 50 years previous by Emily de Chatelet. Wow. <laughs> Evidence for optimism is all around us, she said. Nature shows us everywhere, and she believed math and science would prove it. This world isn't perfect, of course, she said, but... It contains the best possible balance of things. Because the best possible world doesn't mean a pain-free world or a world without struggle. We need those things. They're a part of the whole. Hmm. We have so many paths to happiness in this best possible world, she said. And when you choose to see it that way, your whole experience shifts. For as long as we live, we must try to make happiness penetrate every door open to our soul. We have no other reason for living. Let us try, then, to maintain good health, to have no prejudices, to have passions and to make them serve our happiness, to preciously guard our ability to suspend disbelief, to ward off sadness, to never regret the past. Lastly, and above all, let us be very clear what we want. Let us decide which route we want to take to spend our lives. And let us try to plant flower seeds as we go. like to learn more about Emily de Chatelet, you can find pictures, links, and David Bodanis's book, Passionate Minds, on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Special thanks to the Contest de Salignac at Chateau Siri for letting us visit. Music for this episode was recorded by the Advent Chamber Orchestra, Catherine Finch on the harp, Philip Cerna on the viol, the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and John Michelle on cello. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of additional content and pictures each week. We are so grateful for all of our sponsors. You could become a sponsor for as little as a buck a month to help make more episodes happen. Special shout out to Chantel Oliver, Catherine McKay, and Dorothy Merrill. Thanks for donating, and thank you for listening. <laughs>